you know, you have to prepare yourself emotionally for unexpected expenses because they do happen. You need to prepare yourself for workmanship, you know, which does not meet your standards and learn how to manage the contractor and the subcontractor. And being in the military, most people know how to do that. You know, it's not with a contractor and a subcontractor, but it's, you know, it's with, uh, you know, soldiers and sailors that report to them. Welcome to Podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick, and this is show number 10. I ain't rich, but I damn sure want to be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness. But it can buy me a boat. It can buy me a truck to pull. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Hey, fellow patriots, uh, I have a special treat for you here today. It is my honor and privilege to be interviewing uh, Mr. Joe Albano, who I was introduced to by a mutual friend, one of his classmates from West Point. Joe is an Army veteran in the late 60s, early 70s, his classmates with Colonel Bob Fitton, who I worked with in Homeland Security, worked for for a few years, a really great guy, and I'm really glad he introduced me to Joe. Joe is... uh, uh, he comes out of originally West Caldwell, New Jersey. He now lives in Sarasota, Florida. Joe was a, I'm going to go all the way back to high school because uh, he's got some interesting uh, history. He was a, a football and baseball star back in high school, inducted into the Athletic Hall of Fame at that high school. He did a year of prep school at the Bullis School, and he went on to West Point where he was a football star, broke a bunch of receiving records there elected by his teammates as the MVP of the 1970 season, the MVP of the Army-Navy game, which is a big deal. He was all New Jersey, as you would suspect, coming out of high school, along with guys on that team. Some of them went on to be uh, big NFL stars as well. Uh, He was first team, UPI, API, All East, and all kinds of awards at West Point, so he must have been a pretty good cadet along the way. He'll probably modestly say he wasn't good enough to play the NFL, but I'm positive his teammates would have said differently. So Joe did five years in the Army and went on to a career in finance and sales and marketing, I believe, and then retired out of the World Trade Center in the year 2000 down to Florida, and that's where he got involved in real estate and I believe what we call today property flips, uh, but he'll get into that. Joe, can you hear me five by? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Yeah, as, as Jim said, I graduated college in 1971, spent five years in the military as an infantry officer. I started out at Fort Benning. Uh, spent three years in Germany, and the last 18 months in the service I spent back at West Point working in the athletic department. I left the service in 1976 and began a career in the financial services industry with uh, Irving Trust Company, which is a bank that was acquired by Bank of New York. I also spent time at Chase Manhattan Bank, Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America, and then my final stop in my financial services career was with Cantor Fitzgerald, which uh, 
I retired from them on December 31st of 2000, which was about eight and a half months uh, before 9-11. My company had on the North Tower, the first tower hit, we were the 101st through the 106th floor, and we lost the most people on 9-11. I retired, as I said, in the end of 2000 and moved to Sarasota, Florida. I spent one year playing golf and tennis and traveling and doing a lot of the other activities that retirees do. And after about a year, I got a little bored and I obtained my real estate license in Florida back then. After a year, you could also apply for your broker's license. And I uh, obtained that license as well. And I began the process of purchasing properties to, to renovate them 100% and uh, to sell them hopefully for a profit. Uh, as a broker, I would receive a commission on the buy side when I purchased the property and a commission on the sell side of the transactions. Good deal. Hey, thanks a lot, Joe, for giving some of that background, sharing what I'm sure was a, a sobering and stunning time for you after 9-11. And I appreciate hearing that history and putting, um, you know, a lot of people forget uh, as time goes by uh, what a horrific tragedy that was. And you obviously had uh, personal connections with that, with all your friends. And I, I know um, your partner you worked with, I think, over 20 years, you said, and he he, uh, he passed away on 9-11 as well, right? Correct. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the company lost uh, 658 oh, employees geez. on that day. Um, you know, a little side note is that had the attack been about a half hour later, you know, there wouldn't be many more deaths on 9-11. The uh, New York work week started at nine o'clock and the First plane hit at 8.46 in the morning. So uh, had they waited, most people arrived at work, uh, you know, right at nine o'clock with their coffee and their Bialy or bagel. And had they waited, had the plane hit the tower, the North Tower, you know, after nine o'clock, there, there would have been many more uh, deaths. Tragic for sure. Well, we're definitely blessed that you weren't still there at that time and glad to have you here today to share some of your background. I know you were reluctant at first to uh, let me interview you because you haven't been investing for a while, but I'm super glad you agreed to go ahead and, and uh, share with us uh, some of your background on how you how you got into real estate and then what you did while you were there. One of the things right out of the gate, Joe, I like to ask people with some experience is if they can give our listeners an early warning signal. Early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. For new investors, because most people listening to my podcast are younger military people or new veterans, I like to give them a warning, uh, you know, a slap in the face or cold water in the face, if you will, on something you might have learned along the way of something they can watch out for and learn from one of your lessons, if you have any. Over. I would say, you know, with that, probably three things come to mind. And these were mistakes that uh, I felt I made as I look back on my uh, initial properties. We did uh, 16 properties. And I would say the first mistake was I overpaid for my first property. And we'll get into a formula that I use to decide on how much to pay for a property. Uh, the second mistake I probably made was uh, selecting a contractor who was the lowest bidder rather than a contractor who was very good at the work that they did. And then I think probably the third thing as I look back on it is trying to sell my own properties rather than hiring a real estate professional uh, to do so. Uh, these mistakes 
led me to a book which I be, which became my Bible and which I would recommend to anyone who's interested in real estate investing. And the, the book is entitled Buy, Fix, Sell, and Profit. And it's available on Amazon for, for less than $20. And I believe that this book covers almost everything a new investor should learn regarding real estate investing in you know in the residential market for small family homes and and con- condominiums the book again is entitled buy fix sell and profit and that became my bible and i followed what was in that book and it turned out to be a very successful strategy for me Excellent. Do you know who the author is of that? No, but it's on Amazon. I forget. Well, Google it. No, I appreciate that. I I don't think I've heard of that book and uh, definitely going to look it up after our interview. So that's great. I got three for the price of one. (laughs) Don't don't overpay. Don't pick the lowest bidder. Don't overpay on the first one because you're anxious. Uh, Don't pick the lowest bidder because you want to make more money, but you probably end up paying more, I'm guessing. Uh, my wife and I have had that discussion recently on something that we did, and the last one's intriguing. Don't try to always sell your own properties. Uh, that is interesting. I wonder if you can expand just a little bit on the sell your own property part. Like, is that a time a time type of thing, or what? Why would you not want to sell? Why? Uh, what? What's the lesson on not not selling your own properties? Well, I think uh, when you try and sell your own property, you become emotionally involved in the property. And it's good to have an independent third party who's not emotionally involved in the transaction trying to sell it to you. And I think sometimes people are wary of real estate professionals and brokers who are trying to sell their own properties. So uh, I found that uh, after the first couple of properties, I decided to turn over the responsibility to uh, a real estate professional in Sarasota. And I found that it took some stress off me and at at the same time, it, I had a good new member of my team, which was a real real estate professional. Okay, great. All right. That makes sense, I guess. People people would look at you like, hey, I'm sure you're just pushing your own property over the other ones because it's yours, right? And things like that. Maybe a conflict of interest thought, whether it's real or perceived, right? Correct. Uh, I got you. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Now, one thing, this may not be accurate for everyone, but Joe, the way I think about investing in real estate, I think... In four areas that some people do discreetly, but some people do a blend of. Some people don't think about this way at all, but I think about real estate investing as people who look for just opportunities wherever they're at. Some people pick a geography, stick with that. Some people end up with an asset class, and then other people do niche investing, like uh, one of my buddies who does short-term rentals only. Uh, So as you went out and did these 16 properties, what was most important to you of those four? Well, I would say, you know, my philosophy and my approach was to purchase condominiums in Sarasota, Florida, and also on Longboat Key, Florida. Longboat Key is a barrier island off the uh, the coast of Sarasota. And I also purchased property in a, an area that some of your listeners may know, uh, Siesta Key. That's also a barrier island uh, off the coast of Sarasota. And my philosophy was quite simple. My philosophy was how much money do I want to make on an investment? And okay. once I began to renovate my fourth property, I did a total of 16. My profit target was uh, 100,000. And I began to follow the formula, which I learned from the book that I mentioned earlier, Buy, Fix, Sell, and Profit. Also, it was important to be 
in putting my strategy together to become acquainted with experienced real estate professionals who could help me estimate the value of the properties once they were remodeled. It was also important to become acquainted with some contractors in town to provide me with the approximate ballpark figure of what it would cost to renovate a condominium or a small single family home. Lots of times they would give me approximate costs per square foot. And then part of my philosophy was to purchase properties in an area where there was a rising rising real estate markets, where prices were rising and ex- expected to rise for the foreseeable future. And if you'd like, Jim, I can go through the formula that I used, which would dictate for me price I should pay for a property. I think I mentioned that I overpaid for my first property. And so the profit was uh, a lot smaller than I anticipated. Absolutely. I, I, that was going to be my next question, if, you, if you're willing to, to, to break that down a little bit. Yeah, and the, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. You know, the, I call it the, the first line of my spreadsheet was the maximum retail value. And what I would do is I would have a real estate professional come with me to the property, look at it, And if I totally remodeled the property, and I did that on every property, I tore out everything, drywall, plumbing fixtures, flooring, et cetera. And they would give me an approximate price of what I could sell the property for once it was completely remodeled. And then what I would do, I would subtract the purchase costs of the property, which were uh, basically your closing costs. And I said said earlier there was the maximum retail value of in this example I'll use two hundred and fifty thousand is what the property could be sold for after it's remodeled. Then I would subtract the the closing costs or the purchase costs. Then I would subtract the rehab costs. And in my example, I'll I'll use fifty thousand dollars as a cost to rehab the the condominium. And then I would subtract the mortgage. I would pay the mortgage payments I would pay over, say, a nine to 12 month period, the property taxes, the maintenance fees. And then I would also subtract the sales costs, which typically were 6%, 3% for the broker who brought in the buyer or the agent, and 3% to the uh, listing broker. And then I would subtract what's called a contingency factor. I found in doing these renovations that there was always a surprise expense, and I made that equal to 1% of the price that I could sell the condo for when it was totally remodeled. And then here's the key to the whole formula. If nothing else that you learn, this is what people should grasp from this formula, and that is how much profit do I want to make? So in the example I just cited, I Realtors told me the first unit I ever did was uh, that I could sell it for $250,000. I subtracted the purchase costs, which were about 1.5% of that $250,000, and that was $37,50. And then I would subtract the rehab costs of $50,000, the taxes, the maintenance fees, the sales costs, the contingency factor, uh, which was $2,500. And then the profit, I wanted to make 40000 on the deal. So the maximum I should pay for that condo, and this was the very first one I did, I wanted to pay, I should have paid 138000 and I didn't. I didn't. I paid 
5000 for it. When I eventually sold it, profit was, was squeezed a little bit and I made less of a profit. But I used this formula, which is very simple. Uh, just what can I sell it for minus the costs of holding the property and renovating the property and then include in the equation how much of what you want to make on the transaction and the important component, and maybe the most important component, is how much profit do I want to make? And once you subtract all those numbers, you come to what I call the maximum purchase price. And if you purchase the property at that price, you pretty much guaranteed your profit. And quite often, people will buy properties, renovate them, and then throw them out on the market and hope they get their price. You know, it just seems that that's not the right way to do it. It's risky. Yeah. It's very risky. So including the profit in that equation is going to come up with a low price. And I'll be honest, I I only got one out of every seven that I bid on. And, uh, you know, some people thought I was lowballing them and so forth. But I knew what the formula was and I had to discipline myself uh, to do that. As far as advice to new investors, and, and some of your list, listeners, especially those that are active duty military members who, uh, you know, get transferred and so forth. But I, the recommendations I would make would be to start small. Okay. Uh, that would be number one. You know, learn the ropes as you do it. Find a good contractor. That would be my second bullet. Thirdly, select subcontractors with the assistance of your contractor. He may have a good drywall guy or a tile guy or a good plumber or a good electrician, but carefully select the subcontractors. Follow the formula that we just went through. Be honest with yourself. If possible, use USAA or one bank to do any financing that you have to do because uh, then they'll become a partner with you as you do more loans uh, down the road. Okay. That's pretty much it, Jim. And, and I've got some other comments here I could. Uh... Well, sure. Let me let me uh, break in there. And first of all, thank you for for laying that out, that level of detail. I got a bunch of notes here, and it's very interesting. Like you said, straightforward. I think you were doing this years before a lot of other people jumped on this bandwagon. Nowadays, I think some of the, the the terms that you're using, some people have turned into other phrases. Like I'm used to hearing, like max retail value. I hear people now call that after repair value, uh, max purchase price. Some people call that maximum allowable offer now. But essentially, I really like how you really keyed on on that. You included, first of all, all the expenses. I think some of those things you add, some people leave those out because they want sometimes to believe that these costs don't exist. I don't know. They're just (laughs) hoping. But the way you detailed every single cost, I think is great. And your contingency factor and then specifying that key of what profit you want. Really, like you said, if you know the market the way you've known the Sarasota market and those outlying barrier islands, then it's a pretty safe formula and uh, and, it, and it makes sense. So I, I appreciate you really laying that out and then adding in the, the advice for the new investors with starting small, finding a good contractor and selecting those subs. And I think that's just solid end-to-end I could tell you were educated at a good place. You lay all this stuff out, you know, finance. It's uh, it's it's really good. So one thing I do want to ask you, uh, based on this, and I'm I'm guessing the I might know the answer based on the tips you just gave, but if you could go back to 1999, 
again and start with this in mind of what you know now besides not paying too much on that first one and getting good contracts, is there anything else you might consider doing differently uh, in terms of where you buy, how you buy, or would you just do the same thing, but uh, more smart, smartly? Now? Yeah, I would be more smart and follow the, the formula that I laid out. And I think it's, it's important to carefully select the contractor. Of course, you, you need to discipline yourself not to uh, overpay for a property. Looking back, I would hold properties for more than a year, at least a a year and a day, uh, so that the capital gains tax would be long long term rather than short term on an investment property. And something I think is important, I would not have a partner for an investment property unless it was my spouse. I've seen too many people go into partnership and they argue about expenses and they argue about the the listing price and they argue about uh, what they should pay for a property. So I think it's a good project, good experience for, you know, a husband and a wife or a companion or so forth. I would say that. Uh, but my wife and I argue about all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, there you go. At least keep it in the family, right? <laughs> We're no kidding. I'll tell you. And and some other thoughts, maybe, you know, you have to prepare yourself emotionally for unexpected expenses because they do happen. You need to prepare yourself for workmanship, you know, which does not meet your standards and learn how to manage the contractor and the subcontractor. And being in the military, most people know how to do that. You know, it's not with a contractor and a subcontractor, but it was, you know, it's with uh you know, soldiers and sailors that report to them. And then, you know, utilize the lessons you've learned in the military. You know, I remember one of my NCOs always told me, inspect, detect, and correct. And so I would uh, visit the job site, not every day. I don't want to get in the way of the contractor, but I'd go by uh, maybe three days a week to check on the work and use that concept of inspect, detect, and correct. And I also found it uh, more efficient to stay at least one step ahead of the contractor and the subcontractors with regard to items were needed for the renovation. For example, if uh, I did the purchasing for plumbing fixtures, towel racks, toilet paper holders, sinks, uh, the kitchen cabinets, and so forth. So I would make sure that, you know, they were on site when the contractor was ready for them. And my final thought would be that don't try and cut corners by not getting a permit from the local municipality. You know, make your contractor apply for a permit. It's just an application. Uh, You usually attach to it a copy of the plans. And uh, the reason for that is I think it's important to have the, the building inspectors come out and inspect the property to make sure that the contractor didn't make a mistake with the plumbing or the electrical. I had a plumber once that hooked up the hot water to the toilets. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah. So you wouldn't know it until you went to clean the toilet, but uh, you know, that the town picked up on that. So I found that very helpful. Yeah. That's, uh, that was, that's pretty much it. Just summarizing, just, uh, you know, prepare yourself emotionally for unexpected expenses, um, you know, be able to correct the contractor and the subcontractors, you know, utilize the lessons you learned in the military and uh, stay one step ahead of the contractor. And I think in 
you know, when all is said and done, you're going to feel a real sense of accomplishment when it's done, and especially when it is sold and you, you pocket the uh, uh, the profit. That's it, Jim. Okay. Hey, I appreciate all these uh, all these insights, Joe. One one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and thanks for mentioning the capital gains tax item. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people pick up on that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing maybe it's still that. I don't know if you know. It's something I'd have to research. I don't know off the top of my head. If you hold it over a year, still, do you think uh, the capital gain? Yeah, usually when you held a held a property less than one year or one year or less, I should say, then your profit would be included in your income, your ordinary income. It would be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. But if you hold it for 12 months and a day, then it's treated as a long-term capital gain. And now I know under the new tax code, the capital gains rates can be as low as 0, 10, 15, 20, 25%. So I think it's important if you can you know, speak to an accountant or a tax professional, and it may be advantageous to hold the property for a month or two after it's completed and and you can always negotiate with the buyer you know a closing date would which would extend beyond the one year period from when you purchased it okay did you um Joe let me ask you this as well since you were a broker what what are the are there rules comp- related to the MLS i mean did you buy all these off the MLS or do you get them off market i know a lot of people that want to do flips these days they put out direct marketing you know a lot of, a lot of people that aren't involved in the real estate industry. They put out direct marketing, which is, I guess, something brokers do all the time to get listings anyway. But how, do, how does that work? Yeah, I, I, I was a member of the MLS in Sarasota. So I would go in there every morning and see properties in areas that I was interested in. Okay. I would see which properties were, were listed for sale. That helped me to get a feel for the prices in the areas as well. Uh, but if you're not a real estate agent, you're not a real estate professional, you may may be able to partner up with a real estate person who could uh, access that information and that data for you. Uh, I also was able to buy some properties, probably half, before they even went on the market because I would, uh, you know, there were people that knew I was interested in a specific building. You know, in Florida, we've got, uh, you know, an older population here. And if someone passed away, their children in Seattle would want to sell the property and they and they were looking for a quick sale and they get it off the their list of things to do. So sure, sure. Okay. Half of the properties were 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 purchased directly from uh, families who wanted to sell them. Great. Well, Joe, I know you got some another engagement you got to get to this evening, so I won't keep you much longer. But I did want to probe a little area relative to football because you didn't address it at all, uh, which is fine because we're talking real estate. But I. I uh, so you certainly give football players a good name here today, sharing with us after all this time. We're going into right. finance. Uh, my my youngest son's sensitive to that because he played uh, Division One football and he was a you know a high school quarterback and then went to linebacker. So I'm sure he's had more than a few concussions. And uh, but he doesn't like football players being portrayed as dumb guys. So right. Uh, uh, you don't sound that damaged at this point, and I'm sure you took a lot of hits as a, as a star receiver at the college level. I took. I did have two concussions. I can tell you that. No, you were. Were you knocked out completely? No, no. One was. I was in the hospital for three days. Oh, jeez. One was against Notre Dame, and and one was in practice. Hey, so. Yikes! But hey, I want to ask you what your, if, if you don't mind sharing 
uh, a favorite memory or two from your uh, college days. I know we, we talked one day and you shared some uh, of your Oregon stories where my son was a football player for two years. But uh, when you look back at that, uh, what, what, what fondest memories did you get out of uh, being a football player at West Point? Well, one was the 1968 Army-Navy game. Uh, we had a very good team at Army. Uh, we had only lost, uh, we'd lost three games by a total of 12 points. Uh, we lost to Missouri, which was undefeated that year by four points. We lost to Penn State, which Joe Paterno's first undefeated season. Uh, we lost to Penn State 28-24. And then we had a hiccup against Vanderbilt. We lost uh, 17-13 to Vanderbilt. But for me, the, my first initial memory was the 1968 Army-Navy game. And we were supposed to, we were a much better team in, than Navy that year. And we were supposed to really roll. And we went up 14 nothing early in the game. And we were kind of talking in the huddle that this was going to be a cakewalk. Well, before you know it, Navy scored two touchdowns. And the score was tied 14-14. And then uh, late in the fourth quarter, it was third and 10 from our 20-yard line. And uh, I caught a pass and ran 60, I think 63 yards, 64 yards, and set up the winning score as time ran out. Nice. Navy. So Great memory. Nice, nice <laughs> Help me out academically, I can tell you that. The professors finally knew who I was. So that, <laughs> that always helps, you know. Nice. What a great memory. But that was a nice memory for my sophomore year. And uh, actually, the following season, the ABC Sports, every time they would show preseason advertisement for college football, they would show that play. And, uh, yeah, so it was a nice memory for me and my mother. She was my biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> as it should be, as it should be. Oh, right. That's an awesome. Well, thanks thanks for sharing that memory. And I know uh, uh, you had a big impact on all your uh, teammates and looking back and something. And it's funny you mentioned that. So I, uh, not knowing who you were, I looked you up when Bob uh, Bob said, yeah, I got a friend that would be perfect for your podcast. And I, when I looked you up, uh, an old article came up and it was about right before the 1970 Army-Navy game. And I guess their coach was using something you said to the press as inspiration, even though it wasn't intended that way. And I don't know if they quoted you right or not, but it was basically you were still lamenting the loss two years earlier to Penn State. And you were saying, I'd rather have that win at Penn State. Uh, I don't know if you recall that or if you ever. I, I, I absolutely do. Okay. <laughs> I, I do. I remember that. And uh, our head coach, Tom Cahill came and spoke to me as soon as he got wind of it. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, basically I said that I, I think a player gets more satisfaction at a beating an undefeated Penn State football team than the Naval Academy. Well, it came back to bite us and they beat us my senior year. So, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so that, uh, but I'm still friends with the Navy players and uh, they had me up at the Naval Academy last year, last fall. It's just a bond that we have beyond all of us went 10 different directions and, uh, but I'm still very close to a lot of the Navy players and it's a, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice feeling. Great. Real solid. They're a solid bunch. Real special memories. I'm sure. So, Hey Joe, thanks for taking the time today. And I look forward to uh, uh, talking with you more down the road and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, great interview. So uh, have a good night. All right, Jim. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for your service. Same to you. Bye-bye. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. 
Cause the flag still stands for freedom And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up next to you And defend her still today Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless